Today we are talking righteousness, and uh, I grew up watching the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and so all week long I've been thinking about it the way Michelangelo would have said it, you know, and then I know we have some Californians in our mix that have turned into East Coasters by the will of the Lord, California surfer dudes, and so I know the way you say it as well, but if you uh, didn't grow up watching the Ninja Turtles and you didn't grow up in California, let me teach you how to say it the way I've been saying it, unfortunately. All week long, and hopefully not this morning. I have a couple of friends named Roy. I have three different Roys, actually, in my life. And so you say their name, Roy, and then you say, Chus. You got it? Just say it together with me. One, two, three. Roy Chus. Roy Chus, dude. Okay, so, so I'm, here's what I'm doing. I, I'm trying to make this not so churchy of a word for you this morning. Because the, the truth is that we're all concerned with righteousness. Every single one of us is concerned with righteousness. Righteousness is a judicial term along with other judicial biblical terms like justice and, and justified. Uh, righteous is a, a judicial term where, where the, the judge's gavel comes down and you want, I want him or maybe her in your life to say, you're righteous, you're, you're good, you're, you're okay, I approve, you are right. And, 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 and I think we all really want that. It just depends on who we are as to who we deem the judge in our own lives. Not that that's okay, but that's something that we do. And so for you, maybe it's a, a, a specific person whose approval you're after. Maybe you want your judge to be a, a specific group of friends who you want their uh, uh, their approval, maybe if, if for you is your family or a, a specific parent who you've been kind of striving for years and years and years to get their uh, approval, or maybe for you it's church folk. You just want them to look at you and say, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. Or maybe it's coworkers, or maybe it's the mom's group that you run with. Wh- whatever it is, we all kind of feel it. We all kind of want that when the gavel comes down for them to say, I approve, for them to say, you matter, you're correct, you're in the right, you're righteous. It's kind of like those early reality television shows in the early part of the millennium that were coming out and, and you could get voted out of the house or you could get voted off the island. And so the few days before the vote, everybody would be kind of running around trying to get the approval of everybody so that they understood that I deserve to stay, I need to to, to stay, and so most people uh, played that game. And in fact, I think we all kind of play that game today, without cameras, without microphones, without exotic animals slithering over our beds at, at night, just trying to prove that we're good and we're right and we're worthy. We want people to think that that we matter. And so maybe it's for you. You're you want people to know and approve. Hey, I'm a very successful business person. I wasn't given any handouts, any, any freebies. I worked my way up the old-fashioned way. Or maybe it's, I'm a parent, and, and I'm doing the, the noble thing. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a parent, and I, I sacrifice for my kids. Or maybe it's, hey, I'm highly educated. I paid my dues in those early years, and I worked really, really, really hard. Or maybe it's, I'm an informed shopper. I only buy organic goods and fair trade goods, and therefore I'm, I'm good, I'm right. Or, or, or maybe it's I'm civically minded or I volunteer or I give to charity. We can just go on and on and on. We do this so often just trying to kind of prove our, our, our place on the island. Trying to prove our, our righteousness. That we are, we're right and, and we matter. And today I need to tell you from the scriptures that that is no way to live. It's no way to live. There is a better way that God has for you. It's better for you, and it's better for everybody else around you. And so look with me at Luke chapter 18. And we're going to be in 9 through 30. That's where we pick up today. Luke 18, 9 through 30. You can turn there, as I said earlier, with the device. You can scroll there. Uh, we'll have scripture up on the screen. We have Bibles around the room. If you want a hard copy, you don't have one of your very own, grab that on your way out and keep that. We'd love for you to have that. But Luke 18, uh, we're spending a year and a half journeying through the book of Luke. We'll end right at Easter time. Uh, the book of Luke. And, and the beginning of Luke, just to kind of catch us up to speed, because it's been a while, we've been bouncing a bit. Uh, the beginning of Luke starts with this guy, Luke, telling us that he's writing for a guy named Theophilus. In fact, it says, Most Excellent Theophilus. That's a nice title, huh? 
imagine somebody call you most excellent mom or most excellent dad or most excellent Josh. That would be, be nice. He's a, he's a man of prominence. He's a man of position. He's a man of means. So he's likely funding this guy, Luke, who's a very educated physician. He's saying, Luke, I want you to dedicate years of your life to research and to compile narrative and eyewitness testimony of this Jesus of Nazareth, it says because he's, he's heard about him, that, that something's up with this guy, and he wants to know f- for certain, is he in fact God? And so Luke is doing this. He's interviewing and he's compiling eyewitness testimony. He's corroborating all the stories because some of the, the stories he didn't himself interview, but he got from others. And so he brings it all together, corroborates the facts. And so we have the book of Luke, and we also have the, the New Testament book of Luke, or uh, of, of Acts as well. And God is working through uh, Luke and uh, his words in this. So it's just an amazing resource we have here. So that's a little bit about Luke. But we're in Luke 18. And, and what happens in 9 through 30 in these next few sections is, is Luke will record Jesus addressing some self-righteous people. And so our tendency when we hear this kind of stuff is to say, get them, Jesus. I hate those people. <laughs> but we never put ourselves in their shoes, do we? And so we need to try to do that this morning. And so read with me. Luke 18, starting in verse 9. It says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So he's talking to people who are trusting in their own righteousness, their own standards for who is right and for who matters. And it's beginning now to affect the way they treat people. Makes sense, right? It it affects how you treat people. So, So Jesus goes on, he tells this story. Look now at verse At verse 10. He tells this story, and and it says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, But beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Love this. Need to hear this myself. So let's recap. Two men walk into a bar. Wrong story. We have two men. You didn't get that? Wait for it. Okay. So two men walk into a temple to pray to God. We have a Pharisee. We have a a tax collector. Now, let's work really, really hard to hear this as best as we can as one of the original listeners would have heard this. For those of us who, who grew up in the church or you've been around the church for any length of time, you've read the scriptures, we hear Pharisee, we think bad. We hear tax collector, we think bad, but God gives grace to those guys. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, good guy, in the end, because God got a hold of his heart and his life. We think Levi as well. But for the original listeners, it would have been totally flip-flop. For the original listeners, they would have heard this, they would have heard Pharisees, and they would have gone, ah, those guys. They seek to honor God. And they go above and beyond. They really want to honor the Lord. I'd love to spend time with one of those guys, get some wisdom from one of those guys, learn from them how I might honor God, how I might live the way God wants me to. Those guys are honorable. Those guys are holy. Tax collectors, chumps. I mean, they would not like the tax collectors. Those guys were sellouts. They were from among their own people, But they sold out and they started to to take a job for Rome, this oppressive world superpower. And they would then go around working for the enemy, collecting taxes from other people for tyrannical Rome so that Rome could then go and execute their friends and then oppress them. And then on top of that, they were extortioners. And so if the the tax bill said $100, they'd say it says uh, $200. And then they'd keep the other $100. I mean, it was just awful sellouts for for an awful world superpower and they were making the tax collectors were universally seen as wicked and the pharisees were almost universally seen as good 
And so when Jesus gets to the punchline, what ends up happening for these people would have been that they were, they would have been completely taken back. And again, we, we've been going through the book of Luke. We've been talking about Pharisees a bit. And so we don't necessarily feel that. We, we know tax collectors, eh. But God loves them and he, he shows grace to them. Pharisees, man, Jesus was out for those boys. That's kind of how we feel. But let's hear it as they hear it. Let's look at the, the people that Jesus describes. There's a Pharisee who walks in the temple to pray. Verse 11, notice that the Pharisee prayed standing by himself. Circle, circle, dot, dot. Now I've got my cootie shot. I don't want to get what they got. That, that's what he, he does, right? They, they treat sin like the cooties, as if it were something that you could get by proximity, by getting too close to people. And so you, you, you would want to distance yourself from very sinful, wicked people. Sounds a lot different than what we see Jesus throughout the book of Luke doing, right? He gets close to, to just blatantly, overtly sinful people. He has a dinner party with Levi, the, the tax collector, and all of his buddies. He allows two separate occasions, scandalous women, come close enough to him that they, when they cried, their tears fell on his feet and their hair touched his feet and they washed his feet. What are you doing getting near those women, Jesus, let alone letting them touch you? He got close enough to the life of the party that he would be accused as being a drunkard, as being a, a, a glutton. Sounds a lot different than the Pharisee who stood over there by himself. Because Jesus knew you don't catch sin. Sin originates in your heart. And that's why he looks at people and says, yeah, 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 you didn't physically commit adultery, but you've committed adultery in your heart. He just keeps going back to the heart. And so, no, it doesn't work. Now, notice the content of the Pharisees' prayer. And I'll use the word prayer very loosely here because prayer is when you talk and listen to God. It's an exchange with God. But there's no listening at all in the Pharisees' prayer, is there? It's only talking to God. It's only informing God of his spiritual resume. He first says, God, I thank you that I'm not like and then he starts to list some people with some major flaws. Extortioners, adulterers, unjust, even this tax collector over here. Now notice, who is his standard for righteousness here? It's not God. Be holy as I am holy. You ever heard that? Straight from the scriptures. It's not God though, is it? His standard for righteousness is other people. Well, I'm better than him. I'm better than her. I'm better than that guy. Definitely better than that woman over there. His standard for righteousness is other people. You ever played that game? Come on. Told you I wasn't going to let you off the hook. You ever play that game? You look around the room and you're like, you know, I'm, I'm doing all right, actually. I'm doing pretty good. I, you know, I'm, I'm better than, I'm prettier than her. I'm funnier than him. I'm a lot healthier. I care for my body a lot better than, than that guy. I'm nicer than that jerk over there. My family's more put together than that jacked up family. They had it coming. You ever play that game? And then in verse 12, he goes on and he lists some examples of his spiritual fervor. He says, I, I fast twice a week. That's uh, when you don't eat so that you can focus in on prayer. It's kind of catalytic with your prayers. I do that twice a week. Man. He, he goes on, he says, and I give away a tithe. That's 10% of everything that, that I earn. He, he's aware of himself. I'm doing really good. I'm working really hard to honor God. God must. I mean, he has to be. He's indebted to me, really. He has to be pleased with me. Now, compare him to the tax collector in verse 13. It says, he stands far off. Not to keep the cooties off of himself. He stands far off because he knows he's infected. <laughs> and he feels unworthy to come close to God. It says, he would not lift up his eyes to heaven. He's not even going to look up. He just... It says he, he beats his, his, his chest... This agony over 
his awareness of his unworthiness and of his sin and how far he is from God. And I have sold out my own people. I've sold out God's people. I'm, I'm supporting with my work, execution of people. It's just, I, he gets it, right? And then in, instead of informing God of why he should not be voted off the island like the, the Pharisee did, he pleads with God, doesn't he? God, would you be merciful to me, a, a, a sinner? God, would you show me your, your mercy? Please, God, not give to me what I know I deserve. I, I'm looking to you. It's a quite different posture that the tax collector has than the Pharisee has, huh? Just really different. Now, I've heard this taught many, 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 many times before. And, and usually it's taught as if the Pharisee is showboating. Everybody, and we, we've seen that in the scriptures. We've seen that in the New Testament for sure, where, where Pharisees are praying loud prayers so that people will hear them. You ever been around that guy? It's like they're trying to squeeze the biggest words they possibly can in their prayer and sound as spiritual as they possibly can. It's like they're praying out of a theology book so that people will hear them and go, wow. I mean, unbelievable. Wow. If you started a church, I would go there. Right? But I don't know that that's what's happening here. Jesus specifically makes a point to say, this Pharisee is standing by himself to pray. There is a reason he's by himself in terms of, I want to stay away from people. But also keep in mind, it's just him and God. He's talking to God. And he's thinking, I'm doing what's right here. I'm being sincere. I'm doing exactly what I was taught to do. And in fact, his words are almost verbatim of a prayer from the Jewish Talmud, which is a primary piece of rabbinic literature in that that day. And so he's doing what he's been taught to do. He's doing what's right in his mind. He fully believes he's righteous. And with this parable, we we often assume it, but, but he hasn't necessarily become this overtly, visibly self-righteous jerk. Thank you that I'm not like that guy. We read that into it all the time. It's taught that way, but he doesn't actually say that. He says, thank you that I'm not like that guy. But he's talking to, to God. He's talking to God. And, and this line, I think, can become very blurry for us today as well. So we say, oh, I'm not overtly, blatantly self-righteous. I'm not running around saying, I'm not you. You're a loser. You're an imbecile. I can't believe you. Wow. I'm not that. But we do easily, I think, slide into this posture of self-righteousness. We, we can slide into that. We're doing the things that we've been taught are right. And, and we really do have to examine our hearts. And we have to ask God, God, would you examine my heart? Show me. The wicked way in me, even if it's a wickedness masked with me doing some, some good things that I've been taught are, are right. Now, let's skip ahead a bit and we'll, we'll come back. Uh, Luke gives us one more great example of self-righteousness and he gives one more great example of the, the opposite. So uh, look down with me um, to uh, 18 and we'll go through 30. These are not parables, these next couple of examples. These are real people now that are around Jesus. And uh, uh, the first one is, is 15 through 17. We'll get back there, but I want to look at 18 through 30 uh, together now. It says, and a ruler asked him, this is real guy, this is not a parable, real guy, ruler, comes to him and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So he's saying, okay, you're getting it, I'm, I'm God, okay. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. That was the first one I was ever made to memorize, by the way. <laughs> honor your father and mother so that you may live long upon the land which the Lord thy God hath given thee, Exodus twenty twelve. I had to write that a hundred times when I get in trouble. Oh, man. That one brings up a little something in my heart when I read it. Okay, 21. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who could be saved? And he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. Peter always just, whoa, just verbal diarrhea all the time. Says, 
Peter, be quiet. We did that, God? 29, he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Now, we know a little bit more about this happening, this moment in the life of Jesus from the book of Matthew. And Matthew will tell us not only is he uh, a, a, a rich ruler, but he's a young rich ruler. And if he's younger, it means that what he rules is not in the synagogue. He's not necessarily a leader in the synagogue based on his age. And so the best way to think about this guy that comes to Jesus is he's a, a young celebrity of sorts. He's, he's a young poster boy. He's, he's youthful. He's extremely wealthy. Now to me, rich is rich, right? <laughs> You're rich, but he's extremely rich. I don't know what that means, but he's, he's got it going on, right? It says he's extremely wealthy and He's not stupid with his money. It says he uses his money in, in honorable ways. He, he wouldn't be a ruler if he wasn't because he was, he was young and he was a ruler. And, and, and though he's uh, young, he, he's, he's doing something with his money that's right. He's the young guy that, that parents would say, I want my kids to follow him. So when your kid says, oh, mom, Lil Wayne is blowing up my Instagram feed right now. That's when you would say, oh, honey, have you heard of RYR? He's a new guy, rich young ruler. He is so wholesome. You should follow him. I hear he's youthful and he dresses really cool and he's nice. That's what you would do, right? That, that's who this guy is. He's the guy that's hip and cool and with it and wealthy. And he's honorable and he's noble and he's a ruler of sorts. He, he was kind of this icon among the people. They would have really loved this guy. And, and rightfully so, he's a good guy. He's got it going on. He, he's good. He would have been viewed as, as righteous. But he comes to Jesus and asks in verse 18, he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life or or heaven? Now, why does he come to Jesus? He's got it going on. He's got youthfulness. He's been very wholesome. We see he's been obeying the commands really, really well. How do we know he's wholesome? It it tells us when Jesus says, you know the commandments, right? And he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, he lists a few. And he says, and all these things I, I've kept from my youth. So he's got youth, he's got money, he's got stuff, he's obeyed all the commandments. And yet something is lacking and he comes to Jesus and he says, Som- there's something, right? What, what do I need to do? Because I don't know that this all is going to get me there. And so Jesus says, verse 22, he says, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Now, can I be honest? This one has always messed me up. <laughs> I, mean, I read this, and I'm like, okay, I preached this sermon last week, and then this. Now, what in the world? We know from the rest of the Bible that, that going and doing something isn't going to get us into heaven. We can't earn our way to heaven by giving to the poor or by getting rid of all of it and self-inflicting poverty upon ourselves so at first it sounds like Jesus is saying something that Jesus doesn't say otherwise and the rest of the Bible uh, goes against and so it sounds like he's saying you want to be right with God well sell stuff and give it away and then you'll be be right with God that will please me that will make you right that'll get you into heaven no took some agony this week for me trying to figure this thing out but what is what is Jesus saying he's saying one thing you still lack pause Now, let me expose that thing which you still lack by calling you to sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And if you're able to do that, it will prove that your identity is not wrapped up in your stuff, but in who you're following me. And then you will have treasures in heaven. You see the difference there? It's not one thing you still lack. You've got to go sell everything and then... it's one thing you still lack let me show you what you still lack you need to go sell all this stuff and if you can do that and follow me then I know that that stuff is not your God but then in fact I am your God you got it here's what he lacked he lacked having his identity be found solely in God and not in the external stuff what he has and what he 
does. Now, Jesus says then in verse 24, he says it's hard. I mean, virtually impossible for a rich person to enter into heaven. It's kind of like trying to take a camel and squeeze it through the eye of a needle. Well, that's pretty difficult, yeah? Because wealth is a, a very easy identity shaper, isn't it? When, when you've got a lot of wealth, you can buy whatever you want to buy to shape your image. You want to be sophisticated? You can dress a certain way and move to Brookline. You want to be G? You can buy the clothes and you can get the car. You want to be adventurous? You can use all that money and travel the world and live an exotic life. Your, your wealth enables you to find your desired self and buy it. And Jesus calls us to lose ourselves and to gain eternal riches. But could the rich young ruler do it? No, he couldn't do it. Why? Because these things were his identity. These things were the things that justified him, that made him righteous, that kept him on the island in the eyes of the people. That guy, he's worked his way up. That guy is cool. That guy is kind. That guy is good. And so he couldn't let it go. And he left, it says, sad and still unsatisfied. Now, this is where many of us will check out if we've been around the church for a little while. We can say, well, I'm not that guy. I'm not overtly arrogant and self-righteous and I'm certainly not rich and so this doesn't apply to me but I'll say this there are some areas where we are all wealthy we all have a surplus of something right and whatever it is that we have a surplus of tends to be our identity tends to become our identity and that tends to be where our self-righteousness is found whatever it is that we have a a surplus in so we need to ask ourselves where does my self-righteousness come from what area of my life do do i think that i have a surplus not necessarily money but an area of my life that i i've got better more than people in. It, maybe it's a character trait or something that I do that I'm better at than, than, than other people. And therefore, that's what should keep me on the island. That's why you need me here. That's what I can contribute. Here's what I want to do for the next little while. I want to give you a, a few signs of your self-righteousness. So if you're a note taker, this is where you can take some notes on the back of the river guide there. Uh, a few signs of your self-righteousness from these passages. Indicators of, of where your personal self-righteousness may be found. And again, these have been messing me up all week as long, so I'm preaching to myself just as much as I am to you. First area is this. If you want to write this down. What area of your life can you not live without? Or what thing... Can you not live without? For the rich young ruler, it was his wealth. He just couldn't give it up. Even for the promise of eternal wealth in exchanges, I just can't let it go. And we all say, wow, that is so sad, man. But could there be something in our lives, if lost, we wouldn't know who we are anymore? Could there be something in your life where if you didn't have that, I don't know who I am. Like without my success in my career, who am I? Or if I'm not a great student, then who am I? Or if I'm not the parent anymore, who am I? Or or if I'm not in this particular relationship, I don't know who I am. I'm lost. Anybody ever been there? If I'm not the one in the office who's getting the laughs and the life of the party and people think I'm funny and hip and with it, who am I? I've been wrestling with this myself this week. If I'm not the pastor of this church and it's growing, then then who am I? It's a terrible way to live. Have you ever seen a parent like this? Like that's their identity? Is that's who I am? Is I am a parent of this little child? That, that's who I am. Makes for very obnoxious parents. I mean, awful. 
And the pressure that that puts on a child will just crush them. If you don't make that team, if you don't get into to that college, dad is going to be devastated. And maybe you've never said that to them, but they feel it, trust me. I just read an article, and there's also a video on, on Netflix about it, about these kids and the pressure that they feel and suicide rate in college and depression in college because they're afraid of going home for Christmas break and, and having to present their grades to mom or dad. It's crushing them. It's just crushing our culture. Article just came out that Massachusetts schools are the best in the nation. That's awesome, but it's also horrifying at the same time. It's horrifying. On the flip side, if dad makes a big, massive parenting mistake, a big, massive failure, and I let my kids down, then we're devastated if that's our identity. And then we check out and we can't get back up in the grace that God gives to you and be the parent for the rest of their lives that they need us to be because we're crushed because we failed one time. You see how it's just messed up. If I pastor like that, I need your approval. I need, I need you to, to, to love me and to laugh at me and to listen to. I'm not going to preach the hard truths of Scripture sometimes. If I find my identity in being a pastor, it's pathetic. You don't want that kind of pastor. We could just go through all of these things, your job, your studies, your relationship, your, your character traits, whatever it is. Is there some area in your life that you're like, if I don't have that, I don't know who I am. And if so, you're finding your righteousness, your worth, your validity in that thing. Now, here's the next one. Uh, another sign of your self-righteousness. What topic do you most often talk about? Verse 12, right? Just talking about himself. What do you talk about the most? It's the beginning of the year, and so everyone goes to the gym, right? And you know that they've been going to the gym because they're telling everybody they've been going to the gym, right? You know what I'm talking about? Those people who every conversation gets back to the gym. I'm over here talking about how much I hate Donald Trump, and they're saying, yeah, I heard some guy talk about it at the gym the other day, right? I mean, it's just, it's crazy. I mean, it just keeps coming back to that. Or the people who eat that certain diet, right? And they got to let everybody know about how healthy they are. Well, I can't eat that because I'm on a diet. You enjoy your Doritos, right? Or, or the person with that parenting technique, and they love to talk about it all the time. Or, or, or the, the, the guy who can't talk about anything but his work. I'm like, do you have a life outside of work? No, it's everything to me. It's what you talk about all the, all the time. You know what we call this? We call this evangelism. We talk about what is most important to us. That's why I've never been a fan of the church idea of let's get people in a room and train them ABC of evangelism. <laughs> because I'm like, if they really love Jesus, they can't help but talk about it. A few weeks, we're going to be in the Super Bowl. I'm just going to prophesy that right now. <laughs> and we're going to be talking about it, right? We're going to be talking about it. You can't help but talk about what you're passionate about, what you're excited about. That's what we do. We, we talk about what our righteousness is found in as well because the more we talk about it, the more righteous we feel. Now, verse 12, the, the Pharisee just can't help talk about himself and all his accomplishments. We just list all these things, right? Now, here's another one. Next indicator of your self-righteousness is what thing must go unchallenged in your life? Don't you bring that up. Don't you talk about that. Don't you go there. Don't you dare question that. What is, what is it in your life is if there's something that maybe when people talk about it, you get upset. That cannot, that's off limits. You can't talk about that. Something that you become maybe defensive about. For some people, it's their political views and they're so passionate about it, so wrapped up in it that they can't even dialogue about it without getting angry. Some people, it's their, their theological views. There are a lot of things that we must agree on, but there's also a lot of things that we don't have to agree on perfectly. We call those secondary issues. There's some things that we're close-handed on. There's some things that we're loose-handed on. There's some room for disagreement from interpretation of the Bible. But for some people, they are so self-righteous about their theological position that they can't even dialogue about it. 
You can't even talk to somebody? Really, 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 really insecure. And for the Pharisees, when Jesus challenged the heart behind their righteousness, man, what did they do? Kill him. (laughs) And they did. They end up killing him. Or there are patterns of defensiveness in your life. And over what? It's probably an indicator of the vehicle that you're using to climb the mountain of self-righteousness so you can get up there and look down your nose at people. A couple more. What do you think separates you from other people? If you were to be asked and were to answer honestly, what is it that separates you from others? Remember the Pharisee stood by himself, verse 11. What area of your life do you think separates you from others? My parenting style is this. Not that. Or my neighborhood that I live in is over here. Not over there. Have you ever said something like, I'll never, I'd never live there. Even though Jesus came here. Have you ever said, I would not be caught dead shopping in that store. Have you ever said something like, I I would never eat in a fast food restaurant. I'm so above that. So unhealthy. I've seen the show. Not doing it. I would never send my kid to that school. You may have developed some self-righteousness. The Pharisees found self-righteousness through their disassociation with some things. Anybody? You disassociate yourself with some things very intentionally. And maybe you're being self-righteous over that. Have you ever noticed how kids don't care? They just don't care, do they? I love that about kids. They, they, they really don't. So the playground, I remember my kids, you know, they're, they're just completely blind to stranger danger, right? And especially with other kids. And they'll just go up to other kids and it doesn't matter what the kid looks like. It doesn't matter how smelly the kid is or how the kid's hair looks. They're just like, hey, you want to play Batman? You Batman, I'm Robin, right? And they just, play. it doesn't matter. They just, right? You're breathing, play with me. And that's kind of how Jesus was, right? That was his requirement. You're breathing, you're alive? Okay, let's hang out. I'll associate with whoever's breathing. I'm not going to play the separatist game. That's why I came, is to seek and to save the lost. To develop a hospital for the people that nobody else wants to touch. That's why I came. I love that about kids. What we're going to see in the the, the next section we're going to look at for just the last couple of minutes is that he says, I want you to be like a kid. Now, last sign of your self-righteousness is is what types of people do you look down on? Kind of in the same, similar vein. Who do you look down on and then flip it? And then there's probably your self-righteousness. The Pharisee, verse 11. Thank you, God, that I am not him or her or him or her. And we'd say, I never look down on anybody like that. That is so arrogant. Really? Let me just throw a few scenarios out there. You ever had somebody smoking a little too close to you? And there's a little twinge in your heart like, can't believe them killing their body. You ever felt that? Or, or, or have you ever sat next to a person on the plane who's heavier and with every bite of their burrito, you're just like, they don't care about their body. And it makes you upset? Do you say something like, OMG, or thank you, God, that I am not like that person? You ever done that? Maybe, maybe with parenting, you ever felt that in your heart and that parent makes that move and you say, oh my goodness, I cannot believe they would do that. And you're feeling in your heart like the way I do it is the way and is my value and is the reason that I'm right, the reason that I'm okay and you're self-righteous in your parenting, you're self-righteous in your health or you're self-righteous in your diet or you're self-righteous in the places you shop at or or where you live or, or how you act or how you carry yourself or how your family is or this character trait or your compassion or your love or whatever it may be. And we find ourselves looking down our noses at other people because they're not what we are. And that's self-righteousness. 
even if they're wrong. Even if they're wrong. Nobody ever said that the tax collector was right in what he was doing. But the difference is when we read the Bible, what Jesus wants us to do is he wants to let that drive us to compassion, to drive us to share the hope that we have in him. And we could just go on and on and on about this though, couldn't we? How could they vote for him? How could they enjoy as a Christian that vulgar television show? And we just look down upon other people while we stand off in our self-righteousness. Maybe I've given you enough. To, to start to feel it in your own heart because I definitely have. So let, let's recap. What area of your life can you not live without? You know what that means? You're insecure. You're afraid to lose that thing. You, you live your life insecure. Or, or what is it that you most often talk about? What does that lead to? You become loud mouth. Or, or what is the thing that becomes... Uh, something that people can't talk about that has to go unchallenged and you become defensive? Or, or, or what is the thing that you think separates you from other people and you become arrogant? Or, or what is the, 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 the thing or the type of person that you look down your nose upon and you become a jerk? We don't want to be those kind of people. Hopefully you don't want to be those kind of people. As I said at the beginning, this is no way to live. Insecure, loudmouth, defensive, arrogant, jerk. It's self-righteousness. That's what it creates. And so there's another kind of righteousness. It's the kind that Jesus is ultimately pointing us to as we round third base. Let's go back to the Pharisee and the tax collector for just a minute. I've already told you that we need to be careful with how we hear this because the original listeners would have heard this and they would have been shocked when Jesus got to verse 14, he says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house. He left justified rather than the Pharisee. If it was just, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, left it at that, we'd have been like, oh, that's cool. Okay. Praise God that he got saved. He gave his life to Jesus. That's cool. But he goes on. He says, rather than, instead of this guy. It's not both. It's instead of the guy who was trusting in himself. And they would have said, well, Jesus, I think you got it mixed up. I think you maybe asked, you misspoke there, Jesus. You, you jumbled your words. I've definitely done that before as I'm preaching. And somebody comes up to me afterwards and says, that wasn't a word. You made that up. I'm like, oh, gosh, sorry. And, but Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus, I think you meant the Pharisee left justified. And the, and the tax collector, no. Uh, no, that's, I actually said it exactly how I wanted to, to say it. Now that word justified in the original language there, it comes from the same root, the same Greek word for righteousness all the way at the beginning back in, in verse 9. It means justified, declared righteous. And so the Pharisee is standing there and he's telling God why he himself is, is righteous, but he left declared unrighteous. Whereas the tax collector is standing far off, looking to the ground, beating his chest. He's aware of his unrighteousness. He's pleading with God to receive God's mercy. He leaves declared by God, not by himself, declared righteous, declared right, declared you're included in. The, the difference is the Pharisee is talking to God about all that he has to give God. And the tax collector is saying, God, you have something to give me. It's a posture of, of humility. It's a posture of receiving. And while the, the first kind of righteousness is self-righteousness, the second kind of righteousness is what we call gift righteousness. It's kind of this posture of hands out. I had a few months last year where I just that's how I prayed when I talked to God it was just always I just felt like in my heart I just need you God can't do this I was just always praying like this like God I got nothing to give I'll just receive it it's gift righteousness I think the best passage to show us this I'll put it on the screen you don't have to turn there is Romans chapter 3 21 through 24 let me just read it for you it says but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law that is apart from obeying all the rules. That's how the righteousness of God has been manifested. 
Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. Tax collector, Pharisee, God sees the wickedness, whether it's overt and blatant or just this little wickedness thing brewing up in your heart. God sees it and all have sinned and we continually fall short of the glory of God, verse 24, and are justified, there it is, by his grace as a, can you give me that word? As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? Righteousness, not from the law. Righteousness, not from your performance. You don't have to tell God how righteous you are. You don't have to plead with God. Here's why I deserve to be on the island, not kicked out of the house. Here's why, God. He says, no, all of you do. We all do. But God is so good and God is so gracious that if you would trust in what he has done through Jesus by giving you a gift, if you would receive it, now you can be declared righteous. You can be justified so that you're not self-righteous. You're Jesus-righteous. As we said last week, it's Christ in you, your only hope of glory. Not you and a little bit of Jesus, the hope of glory. It's Christ in you. And that's better for everyone. It's just better for everyone because now when God does that in your heart and you place faith in Jesus, you're not walking around as this insecure, loud mouth, defensive, arrogant jerk. Instead of being insecure, you're secure. Right? See how that makes you a better parent? Better person in a dating relationship? Better spouse? Better worker? You're secure. You're not loudmouthed about the wrong things. Now you're loudmouthed about the right thing, about the only thing that really matters, Jesus. And you can't help but talk about him because of what he's done because of who I was and, and who he was and, and what he's done in and, and now through me. You're not defensive and defending self all the time. You're sacrificing self. Like, man, whatever I got to sacrifice pales in comparison. You're, you're not arrogant. You're selfless. I, I'm not going to look down my nose at anybody. I'm just going to give myself away. You're not a, a jerk anymore. You're, you're gracious. God, when he gets a hold of your heart and when you get gift righteousness and you open up your hands and you receive it, it changes you. It's a gift. Close with our, our, our last few verses. Luke 18, 15 through 17. Right in the middle of these two. Familiar to some of you. It says, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. No, 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 guys, don't bother Jesus with the kids. Come on, he's really important. Keep the kids away. And Jesus says, Oh, no, let them come. This is a really great opportunity. He calls them to him, saying, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Is he saying, only kids get to give their lives to Jesus. And once you hit the age of 12, sorry, you're not a Christian anymore. I'm saying to such, to the childlike in heart, those are the people who get the kingdom of God. He says, truly I say to you, whoever does not, give me that word, receive, open hands, the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. Tell you what. I know what it looks like for a child to receive something. I just went through Christmas with three of them. Dad, 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 give me, give me, dad, I need, I get, ah, ah. wasn't like, Father, I'm so excited to grant to you my gift that I've been working so hard on. I chiseled it from a piece of wood. No, it was, give me, give me more, rip, rip, rip. And God's saying, that's beautiful. That's what I want. I want you to realize that you've got nothing you could give me that's going to impress me. I'm God of the universe. You see all this? I made it. But if you will come to me as a child and just say, God, I'll take it. I'll take it. Because that's what I want. If you can come, not like this guy, 
God, give me a reward. Become like that guy and say, God, I'll receive a gift. It's like, that's, that's the kind of righteousness I'm after. That's the Christian faith. That's why Christianity breeds not self-righteous, arrogant people. Christianity breeds people who have no room for self-righteousness, no room to look down their nose at anybody. That's why God can do this and take people who are so different and so unlike each other and very different affinities other than Jesus and unify us because we're not looking down our nose at each other. We're saying, I, God's grace. That's why when we mess up and we're going to hurt each other from time to time, we can forgive and we can move on in relationship with each other because, you know what? It's always about the grace of God. It's not about you earn my love. I didn't earn his love. We're family. That's gift righteousness. That's the kind of righteousness that Jesus is calling us to. Would you pray with me? God, I just thank you for this scripture. So amazing. And there's so many ways that we need to leave and apply this. But God, I pray that there would be no one here who leaves today without applying it in this way. And that is just opening up their hands and receiving the gift that you're going to give them. The gift of grace and mercy and forgiveness of sin and right standing with God, not based on their own actions, but based solely on on Christ's righteousness, the actions of Jesus, that you came to earth as a man as we just celebrated, that you lived in our shoes, the life we could never live, and yet you died, the life you didn't deserve, we deserve, but you died it in our place as our substitution. And we open up our hands and receive that. And we would be made right with you because we receive your gift of Christmas, of Jesus coming. God, I pray that if there's anybody in here who's never received the gift of Jesus, that today they would take that gift and they would receive it. They would turn from sin, which is independence from God, and they would turn to you and say, yeah, I want you. I need you. And that in their hearts, they would truly be followers of Jesus. If that's you, just pray to God. Give your life to Jesus right now in the best way you know how. Just say, Jesus, I see my sin like the tax collector, I see that I'm, I'm, I'm sinful. I'm, I've made so many mistakes, but thank you that you love me and you care for me and you welcome me in through Jesus. And I'll, I'll turn from sin and I want to turn to following you. And when you pray something like that and, and God changes your heart, you become a Christian. You become a citizen of the eternal kingdom of God as the, the rich young ruler was, was seeking out. It changes everything. Some of you need that. As we respond in prayer and in singing, you just talk to God. And then if that's you, let somebody know. Let me know. Come talk to me. Write it on your connection card somehow. Just let us know. Others of us in here, we're Christians, but we still tend in our own flesh to to drift back into self-righteousness, not Christ-righteousness. We've been made right with God, and we can't lose that, but we still tend to, to struggle with the way we think, the way we treat people, the way we think about people, the way we think about self, the way we think about God. If you need to talk to God, you need to do some business. I invite you now to do that as well as we sing. But you do what you need to do. And God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy that you give to us. And we come to you right now with hands open saying, I'll receive it. I'll take it. Thank you, Lord, for being so gracious. Be exalted as we sing. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand and worship with us?